Well, good evening, LCM. Tonight is Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020. The title of tonight's sermon is Forecasting the 70. Forecasting the 70. We, we're going to start off here, and we would say that we would love to recap for you some of our recent sermons and foundation teachings, like Star Powers. Somebody say amen if you remember Star Power. Amen. We had the teaching on Monday night about Rephaim. We had Star Wars. Then we had the stratagems of Satan. And then we had, on Monday evening, we had the being behind the curtain. Man, so much that we could recap, but we're not going to do all that. We're just going to remind you of a very few things to help us get us on track, and God has got something for you tonight. So buckle up, get ready, come along with us right now. Amen. Hey, let's start by looking at this first slide of some key points we want to remind you of. You remember this slide? Satanic stratagems. It started with identifying the corruption of the human race, corruption of the nation, worldwide famine, the murdering of males, military intimidation, unnatural giant obstacles, reprobate relatives, air raids on God's house. Still going on. (laughs) Even foreign domination, xenophobic hatred of God's people, offenses of religious people, and finally with supernatural storms. Now, admittedly, when we did this slide, we kind of roped you into uh, the concept that they were Satan's stratagem. And the thing is, is nobody listening questioned that, not whether it was online or in person. We're like, yeah, yeah, it's Satan. And we did that on purpose. But it's important to realize that when we covered this on Monday night, if we could go to the next slide, Nowhere within the context of any one of these passages is Satan ever mentioned. See, that, that's an important thing. When we're talking about the corruption of the human race in Genesis 6, the Benaiha Elohim are named. Satan is not. When we're talking about unnatural giant obstacles, the Nephilim are named. But Satan is not. In fact, you couldn't find a single time in any of these 12 stratagem that we all agree are Satan where mm-hmm. Satan was named. That becomes very important because there's a progressive revelation at hand that it took time to see who was the being that was working behind the curtain. That was a great deal of Monday night's content. As we look at Christianity's propensity to exalt works of fiction above the biblical text, we found some of the reasons that we misunderstand the scripture. Let's take a look. Speaking of these fictional works, let's take a look at... A total fiction that has been actually taken as truth. Let us go over this. This is Paradise Lost, in case you can't see the slide there. It's a poem written in ten books by John Melton. Look, I want to tell you that this was first published in 1667. And that may be the only bit of true information that is on the screen before you. The the publishing date of it. It goes on to say that in this work, Satan was formally called Lucifer. And he's the first major character that's introduced in the poem. Now, if you went around thinking that Satan's name was Lucifer, you did not get that from the Word of God. You got that from a medieval book written by John Milton. See, Satan is not named Lucifer in the Bible, but he is in this fictional work. Let's look at the next point. He was once the most beautiful of all angels according to this work. A tragic figure who famously declares, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Church, I want to tell you something. Satan is not identified as a beautiful angel ruling hell in the Bible. 
No, but if we were going to pick a fictional character, I would have picked the worship leader in most of the churches that I grew up in. That's what they did. They, they make him that. And if you weren't going to pick the worship leader, at least you could have been a little more accurate and picked the youth group leader, right? <laughs> but uh, the thing is, is this had no basics in biblical fact and yet was accepted all over the world. See, let's look at the last two. Following his failed rebellion against God, he's cast out from heaven, condemned to hell. Milton presents this as happening prior to the Garden of Eden. Somebody say prior. Prior. That's prior to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. See, unfortunately, this is a fictional work. Somebody say fictional. Fictional. This is not truth. See, Satan is not identified as fallen prior to Eden in the Bible, but this he was in this fictional work. See, unfortunately, these fictional works have been more prominently featured in the last 2,000 years of preaching than the actual facts found in the Bible. Come on now. That, that should move you. If you realize where these things came from and where the, realize that most of us grew up, if you grew up in church, this is what you believed about the enemy. This is what you believed about Satan. And it has nothing to do with the actual Bible. But this is a church that loves the truth, don't you? Raise your hand if you've heard that Satan fell thousands of years ago. Okay, keep your hand up if you were told this name was Lucifer. Keep your hand up if you were told that he is a fallen angel. Yeah, none of those things can be verified in the Bible. Not, not a single one. That's an important distinction, don't you think? It is. Because almost everybody in this room accepted it as fact for most of your life. Would you like to see where the biblical story of Satan actually starts, where he's identified in? Well, amen. Amen. Let's pull up our next slide. This slide has Job 2, verse 3 on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. See, the Bible presents Satan as his own kind of unique being who apparently occupies the role of a district attorney, or even a prosecuting examiner. This is true in the oldest book in the Bible, and it remains true even into the Newer Testament. At the end of the Tanakh, after nearly 4,000 years of human history, we actually begin to get glimpses that the Most High is aware of Satan's guilt and is going to expose him. Wow. So when you begin to survey the actual biblical text, you start to see that it's not nearly so clear as a fictional work presented it. This is much like the world got swept away by Da Vinci Code, a work of fiction presented as as history. Uh, or much like the world's been swept away by Tin Lahaye's fictional works called Left Behind. It's not actually Bible. It's not even close to Bible, but it's kind of easier than Bible and something in it appeals to you. When you're looking at the Tanakh, the last book in the Tanakh is Chronicles. First and second Chronicles were a singular book. Well, first Chronicles 21 says something that Samuel 24 had not said about the same subject. In second Samuel 24, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he being the Lord incited David against them. But by the time you get to first Chronicles 21, the last book in the Tanakh, It says Satan rose up against Israel and incited David. We spent much of Monday night working to resolve that issue that is a supposed Bible difficulty. The thing is, is it's the result of exalting fiction 
above the written word. If you had never read Milton's Paradise, if you had never been poisoned with that idea, then from Satan's onset in the word, you would see that he actually had a prosecutorial role, something like a district of attorney. But what was even more fun on Monday night is we looked at Ezra and saw that he was pointing at and hinting at impurities in the heavens. There's a reason for that. He wanted you to know what was causing problems on the earth. And he knew it very specifically because a hundred years before his time, we get our very first rebuke of Satan in the entire Bible. Who remembers what book that was in? Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Go there in your actual Bible. We will have it on the screen for you, but we want you to turn there. Say there when you get there. It says this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. You're thinking, you should be thinking of a courtroom. You should be thinking of a prosecuting attorney, a DA. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick statched from the fire? See, in this amazing messianic passage, we find the very first rebuke of Satan. The very first time written in scripture that there is a rebuke towards this adversary. And it's here in Zechariah, which is written somewhere between 557 B.C. and 525 B.C. Somebody say, that's a long time. That's a long time. That's a long time for the Bible story to be going until you realize that there is an outward objection and rebuke to the enemy. Ezra, from the Chronicles, is recording this roughly a hundred years later when he is saying in the previous slide that it was Satan that enticed David. He's got some perspective here that maybe some of the others did, other writers didn't have. Of course Yahweh knew Satan was a dirty prosecutor from the beginning. But it was not apparent to anyone reading the Bible until Zechariah actually wrote about it. It's almost like Zechariah took out his cell phone and got an angle that nobody else saw. Wow. wow. See, Ezra understood that the enemy opposing Jerusalem, opposing Israel, and opposing the family of God has always been Satan. Has always been Satan. In fact, this issue is put on full display in the Newer Testament as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pull up this next slide for you. Luke 4, 5, starting in verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. See, you, Luke uses the word devil in parallel with the term Satan that is used in the book of Mark. And Satan is claiming here to have authority over the kingdoms of the world and is openly soliciting worship for the first time in recorded history. In addition to that, he is not using a proxy, but he is doing it himself. Now, this represents a dramatic change. We see Satan going and coming in the book of Job without any problem. We see Satan and God both credited with the same work in Samuel and in Chronicles. 
In Zechariah, we see Satan standing in the Lord's presence. That is all completely inconsistent with open warfare that was supposed to have been going on before Eden. And, yeah. and the truth is, is you would never have gotten that idea without Milton's paradise. But are you ready for some more earth-shaking revelation in that regard? Yeah. Even after the temptation, even after Satan is asking for worship. Look at Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Shimon, Shimon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. (laughs) Well, who, pray tell, did Satan ask? Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Who is he asking? The judge of all of the earth. The absolute monarch of all of the creation. This mirrors the behavior in Job. This mirrors his behavior in Chronicles 21. This mirrors his behavior in Zechariah. However, the most profound event in the heavens or on earth was quickly coming upon him. And what is more amazing, we can demonstrate from the scripture he didn't understand what was happening. And we want to show you that. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 8. Everybody in the room going with us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8. Say there when you are there. Now, we know that we've had some extensive teachings over the last few sessions together. But if anybody learning anything new in the last week here at this church, last two weeks here at this church... Then don't slow down on us here. Let's understand what's going on. We're helping you to ingest this in a good way tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8 says this. None of the rulers of this age understood it. How many? None. None. There's not one. There's not one heavenly being that understood this outside of God himself. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, they were actually aiding him. They were, they were only securing God's stranglehold on them as they were doing if, this. If they understood, like sometimes we give them credit for, then they wouldn't have done it. This view is corroborated as biblical fact. This is not fiction. Milton didn't write this. This is what the scripture says. And this biblical fact was confirmed by Jesus throughout the book of John. And that's what we want to turn to next. Let's put up the next slide. Here we have a chronology defined by Jesus. And it starts in John chapter 12, verse 30 through 33, where it, it makes very plain now. Everybody say now. 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 Now the prince of this world will be driven out. By now, do you mean 3,000 millennia before this? <laughs> by, by now, do you mean at some point in alpha eternity past? No. Do you think by now he meant now? It's kind of like what I tell my kids to get their shoes on. I mean, now. Yeah. Now means now. Well, the only qu- other phrase I can think of related to Satan and now is the National Organization of Women. <laughs> what a satanic, nasty group that is. Well, this continues in John chapter 13, where Satan actually entered into Judas. Going even further in John 14, verse 30, the prince of this world is coming, he says, and he has no hold on me. We see a progression here. And with John 16, verse 11, he says that the prince of this world now stands condemned. Wow. 
See, let me break this down for you. John chapter 12 explicitly places Satan's fall at the time Jesus is lifted up to be crucified. Does everybody understand that time frame that this is happening? In John 13, it records Satan entering into Judas and abandoning his previous ancient strategy of just using proxies. It's now him doing it. John 14, it shows us Jesus' awareness of the impending conflict. And with John 16, it records the last hours before the crucifixion and Satan's sentencing as a dirty district attorney. Look, this view is corroborated throughout the Bible. Uh, We're not actually teaching it tonight. We taught it on Monday night. We're simply reviewing some of the highlights because a question came forward. What about Luke 10? And I was so glad that you asked because it is that question we're going to answer tonight. But I do want to point to some other passages in the Word that clearly illustrate what we're saying. Let's all look at Colossians 1.22 together. But now... There's that word again, and it's not the National Organization of Women. It's talking about a specific point in time. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Hey, how did Jesus get killed? Crucifixion. Crucified. We're talking about the crucifixion, the point in time at which he was crucified. Reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and... Free from accusation. From the crucifixion forward, the Bible presents Satan as cast from heaven, hurled to the earth, and made a public spectacle of. He didn't slip. He didn't fall. He got thrown out like a bum that did not pay rent. He got tossed out. This was a violent event. Revelation 12 summarizes these events. But we don't have time to do that tonight. We want to get to that question in Luke 10. And besides, we covered it on Monday night. And praise God, even if you weren't there, grace is called the recording in this case. (laughs) To be able to put together the answer, what about Luke 10? You need to be able to properly connect some of the revelations we've now been sharing for weeks. There's a method to what the Holy Spirit is laying out for us. And as you grasp them tonight, I promise your view of the Bible will get clearer and clear. As we move through these, remember, certain, Satan is a dirty district attorney that God knows ha- is impure from the very beginning, but he takes his time to allow him to be exposed publicly at the crucifixion. Yeah. Let's take a look at this next slide together. We're going to remind you of a few things all the way back here at the beginning in the book of Genesis. We have worldwide rebellions that we're bringing to your attention. The first was that the Benai Ha Elohim led humanity into the first. Somebody say first. first. Worldwide rebellion against God. And that was seen in Genesis 6, especially in verses 1 through 4. The next was the 70 nations as defined in Genesis 10. The 70 nations who were the 70 sons of Noah. They enter into the second worldwide rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. Somebody say Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. And then Genesis 12 then records the prophetic announcement that God would use the one nation that would come through Abraham for the redemption and or the condemnation of all the nations upon the earth. Are these three things starting to be familiar with you? Because for the last five or six messages, every message has hinged upon you understanding them. So y'all speak to me. Are you getting it? Amen. 
Let's look at the next slide. And speaking of Abraham, this is the listing of the heptatic blessing as dictated by the today's English version. What God promised is that he would make him into a great nation, that he would bless them. Thirdly, he would make his name great. Fourth, he would be a blessing. Fifth, he would bless those who blessed him. Number six, he would curse those who cursed him. And number seven, that through him, God would bless all the nations. Say all the nations. All the nations. You see, Deuteronomy 32 and Deuteronomy 4 explicitly teach that Israel is God's inheritance. The other nations seem to be left to go their own way as if they had been disinherited. However, God never sets aside his promise to Abraham. Not only to form a nation, but also to bless every nation through him. This was delay for the nations, not destruction. All nations must be blessed through only one nation. Even if you don't pick up every part of the heptatic blessing. Somebody read me the first one. Read it loud. Make you into a great nation. Okay, that nation is Israel. Now read number seven. Yeah, that's funny. You guys would not have made good Lutherans. And that's okay. You were never called to be Lutherans. God was going to make a nation, but through that nation, he was going to bless all nations. The fact that God inherits a nation and he calls it into being never meant that he was not going to bless the other nations. The same promise to establish Israel was a promise to use Israel to bless the other nations of the earth. The Most High telegraphed or forecasted this in a variety of ways, hence our title tonight. One of the more obvious ways comes into view when you understand that in almost every case, 70 is a reference to Gentile nations or dealing with Gentile nations. Now, you're going to want to take a picture of this slide. That should give you some study in the future. I want to run through these rapidly, and then we'll dig into the ones that that we wanted to teach about tonight. When you look at Genesis 10, there are 70 sons of Noah. Those become the nations of the world, the Gentile nations of the world. Israel is not listed among them. When you look at Genesis 11, we find out that the Benai Ha Elohim helped to corrupt the 70 Gentile nations of that time. In Genesis 46... We have 70 Israelites going into Egypt where they are born as a nation and many nations get connected to them and come out in the Exodus. So even there, 70 relates to the salvation of the nations. If you get to Exodus 15, this is Elim in the nations. You ought to be familiar with that. It has to do with 12 tribes blessing the 70 nations of the world. In Exodus 24, there's a beautiful one. We have 70 elders that go up and eat and drink in the presence of God. We'll go into that one more in a minute because it's worth meditating on. In number 7, 12 tribes bring 12 silver sprinkling bowls that have to do with redemption And every one of those 12 bowls is stated to weigh exactly 70 shekels. In Numbers 11, 70 earthly elders are filled with the same spirit that Moses has. One for each nation. In Numbers 29, when you add up the bulls in Sukkot, 
you find out that there is one bull for the redemption of every nation for a total of 70. When you go through Judges, you, I mean, we're just working chronology through the Bible. In Judges, one of the first opponents that we encounter is a king who has humiliated 70 other kings and has them eating under his table. We'll explain to you in a little bit what that represents. In Judges 9, we see some more of satanic stratagem in that Abimelech kills Gideon's other sons. And guess how many there are? 70. We start to see God's desire is to save the 70 nations and Satan's desire is to enslave or kill them. In Judges 12, we have a judge, Abdon. We don't know anything about Abdon except that he raised up 70 sons or grandsons. This picture keeps reappearing in the Bible for a reason. Some of the more complex ones. In 1 Kings 5, when Solomon conscripts labor to build the temple, it's a multiple of 70. The idea is from all the nations of the world, they get to come and participate in Solomon's temple. In 1 Kings 7, when Solomon built the temple, we'll learn tonight that his menorahs were specifically designed to reflect 70 nations. And Matthew will work you through that kind of math. In 2 Chronicles 29, Hezekiah rededicates the temple of the Lord. You want to guess how many bulls he uses to do it? Seventy, one for each nation. In 2 Chronicles 36, the land is going to get a rest. God's people have misbehaved. How long was the rest? Seventy years. God took a year for every nation in the world to retrain his people so they would properly reflect him to the nations of the world. As we start to look at this throughout the Word, you're going to find out that understanding the number 70 and its relationship to the Gentile nations helps you to understand the whole narrative of God's plan. Come on, church. This is an incredible list for you. Anybody learn anything even just going through that list? Anybody know what you're going to be studying the next couple of days and weeks? Okay, amen. Let's start off. We're going to slow some things down just a little bit. We're going to dig into a few passages to help you really grasp this. Let's all turn to Genesis chapter 46, and we're going to look at verse 26. Genesis 46, 26. It says this, All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 people. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. See, now that we have eyes to see, now that we're starting to understand what's going on, we see one man and he develops a family of 70 sons. Somebody say 70 sons. 70 sons. What do you think those 70 sons are designed for? They're designed one for each of the nations on the earth. See, what was stated as a heptatic blessing that we read just a few minutes ago is moving through the generations. It's moving through his family. See, they became a nation. And immediately, they start to include other nations in their number. When this group of 70 increases in number to be a huge population inside the nation of Egypt, in Exodus twelve thirty-eight, it plainly says that a mixed multitude, multiple People, many people, many nations came out with the Israelites in the Exodus. It wasn't just the Israelites. They brought others with them. It was always God's plan. You can see these things as moments of God foreshadowing his great care to go first to Israel and use them to bless the rest of the nations. I want to take a look at Moses in Deuteronomy 
chapter 10. Please turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And we're going to look at verse 14. This is Moses talking about those very same events. And you get his perspective on it. And it's, it's quite awesome. I'm asking you to not forget everything you've learned over the past few services. And we're going to read this together. And I think this is going to make Deuteronomy 10 come alive to you. Hopefully the way that it did to me in the past few days. To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and, uh, and, and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations. Somebody say above. Above. He chose the Israelites above all the nations as it is today. See, church, here Moses' comments should be calling to mind what we now understand is kind of a Deuteronomy 32 worldview of God's personal inheritance being the nation of Israel, exalted above all the other nations. Let's keep going in the passage here. Verse 16 says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. <laughs> Let's just be honest, right? Just don't be stiff-necked any longer. That means you have been and you need to stop. For the Lord your God, listen to this, is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien. Not like those weirdos who have their own little groups. He loves the alien. He loves the foreigners, giving him food and clothing. Do you hear this in the passage? He's the God of all gods. He is the Lord above all the lords. The passage sounds just like Psalm 82 when God was rebuking a heavenly council for not leading exactly the way he does. He's listing here and saying, I accept no bribes. I show no partiality. I defend the cause of the fatherless. These are the same topics that were covered in Psalm 82. And he loves the alien. Man, he is forecasting his love for those who might have been outside but saw what was going on in the land of Israel and wanted to come and wanted to be a part and fell in love with the God of Israel. He's already forecasting that right here in Deuteronomy. And you are to love those who are aliens. Not only is God to love those who are aliens, but you are. For you yourself were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your very own eyes. Your forefathers went down into Egypt and they were 70 in all. In case you missed the idea that this was about the 70, Moses is tying it back in so that you bring this revelation right there to the point of 70. 70 in all and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. See, one nation that began as 70 sons that God would use to gather the lost 70 nations of the world. He says and reminds him of this promise that was given to Abraham. Not only would your children be as numerous as the stars, they'd be of the same quality. They'd be of the same makeup as the very stars in the heavens. Isn't that a good promise? But turn to Exodus 15. We'll look at verse 27. Say there when you're there. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And they camped there near the water. See, one nation that began as 12 springs or 12 tribes, 
that was always intended to feed and regather the 70 palm trees or the lost nations. You see, Israel would never be in a place of rest or refreshment without being a life-giving spring, like Yahweh, aimed at regathering the distant lost nations. Are y'all getting these connections? See, we're going to be disciplined to not answer the Luke 10 question. But I think you can see elements of it right here in this passage. Because, you know, Jesus picked 12 disciples, like Springs. Then 70 that he would then send into the nations of the world. We are going to answer the Luke 10 question. We're just not going to do it yet. Let's go to Exodus 24. And we're going to pick up in verse 9. So often when you get an answer too quick, when you get an answer too easy, you have no idea how to derive it. It's not that Satan was not behind those 12 stratagem that we laid out. It's that you couldn't say how. And you couldn't develop it from the text and the text alone. What we're trying to do is show you exactly how we arrive at the answer that you're going to get in Luke 10. Are you ready for Exodus 24? Yes. Exodus 24 and verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise a hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God. Somebody say they saw. They They saw. And they ate. 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 And they drank. Wow. To have a sit-down meeting with God. A beer summit on Mount Sinai. A beer summit on the summit. We're not going to relay all of the background that is here. Uh, So you should be praying for revelation right now. But the one nation on earth God chose for himself, it had 70 elders. Those elders were brought into the heavens that descended on Mount Sinai, on a mountain somewhere between heaven and on earth, where they're meeting, these elders are meeting there. The earthly Israelite elders ate and drank with the Most High God of Israel. Somebody said that's incredible. That's incredible. Now here's why you're praying for eyes to see. If you have eyes to see, this is forecasting something that we've been preaching about for weeks. The replacement of the 70 spiritual beings that led the nations away from Yahweh with 70 earthborn Israelites who would shine like the stars of the heavens and they would lead the nations back to Yahweh. See, a problem was found that was impure in the heavens and God said, I will raise up from the weak sons on the earth those who will displace you, which is why Paul says we will judge the angels. But it comes with a job. Yahweh is forecasting his intent for these sons that become elders in the heavens to have led the nations back to him. Come on, let's continue to talk about the elders of Israel. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 11. And we're going to look at verse 24. Numbers eleven twenty-four. Hey, we're 35 minutes in. Have you gotten 35 minutes worth yet? <laughs> Numbers we could 11. sell this stuff for 19.99, and then you know we wouldn't have to fi- fly economy class. 
Actually, we want to. You will never catch us dead hanging no. out with prosperity pimps. No. Numbers eleven twenty four says this. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with them. That's interesting. He didn't say he spoke to them. I can speak to you right now. But when you come down and start speaking with someone, that's an incredible thing. And he took the spirit of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. And the last phrase, it says, but they did not do so again. Boo. I, I want to tell you that my personal view of this translation is that the alternate that you might have in your word, in your Bible that has a little footnote says, and they continued to do so. Yeah. Well, which one do you think we're going to uh, completely rest our, our confidence on? Continue. They're going to do this and continue to do this. See, the issue with the Benai Ha Elohim is that they were not operating in the same spirit as the Most High God. That's what he began to chastise them for. They became disinherited because of it. Wow, let that sink in for a second. When you're not operating in the same spirit. See, here God is forecasting the necessity of having the spirit. Of having the one and same spirit that comes from God. These 70 elders who are forecasting the replacement of the heavenly council are here empowered by the spirit of God through their anointed and appointed leader that God provided. Then they began to prophesy. And they continued to do so. Even some that were still in the camp began to prophesy. What are you getting a forecasting of? You are getting a forecasting with these 70 elders of Israel. You're forecasting what Acts 2 exactly looks like. What God intends to do for the entire world. See, much like here at LCM, these elders set the tone. They became the shining example. They went about the work of producing producing other sons of the kingdom that would do the same thing that they did so that they could in turn reach the world with this true salvation. Yeah, but you know, church, sometimes this is easiest taking out a a Bible concordance, right? And looking up the number 70 for yourself. Or there are other times when you must get into the details and actually count things for yourself. Because we're, we're adults in this church. Break out your ag- abacus. <laughs> Need to take off my shoes and socks. Hang on. So listen, begin to turn to 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 48. And as we do, I want you to brace yourself. Because you'll have to add once and then multiply. Add once and then multiply. It's exactly like marriage. Come on, Bim. Come on, Linton. Add once. Add once. And then multiply. multiply. Oh, yeah. Is everybody there? 1 Kings 7.48. Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple. The golden altar. The golden table on which was the bread of the presence. The lampstands of pure gold. Five on the right and five on the left. Everybody got that? Five on the right and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary. So what is being described here is in the holy place. On either side of the bread of God's presence were five menorahs. So help me out here. Count with me, saints. We have five plus five equals... 
10. Okay. Okay. Let, let's, let's get complicated here. How many, who knows how many branches are on a menorah? Seven. 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 So remember we add once and then multiply. So now let's take 10. Remember that previous number, 10 times seven equals. Oh, wow. Amazing. So wait, are you telling me that this, these, this group of menorahs here is that you have one burning light for every nation disinherited because God would call them back through the one nation and that nation being Israel? See, this is the point of scriptures like Isaiah 56, 6 through 7, John chapter 2, Matthew 21 verse 13, Mark chapter 11 verse 17, Luke 19 verse 46. See, God always wanted one nation that accurately represented Him so that He could reclaim the 70 nations of the world. And that's clearly displayed in this assembly. Look, I could see by the looks on your faces that you all had Isaiah 56, John 2, Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19 memorized. And you knew exactly what we were talking about. But just because... You know, I don't have all of those memorized. Every one of those passages is about my father's house becoming a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah 56 literally says, a foreigner who binds himself to me. And this is something that God forecasted through the number 70 all over his temple. My God, I want to be a foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord, don't you? Very few things in the Bible get Jesus to pick up a whip and go to work. But the misrepresentation of his father's desire is one of them. He took it quite seriously. His ministry opens with it in John 2 and it closes with it in Matthew 21. Commentators mistakenly say those are are, are the same event and John took it out of context. Now, I want to tell you, the Bible is never like that. It's the commentator who is out of context. I want to read to you about Hezekiah. Are y'all ready for another one? Oh, yeah. Are y'all all right with that? Yeah. Okay. Second Chronicles 29, we're going to pick up in verse 31. Then Hezekiah said, You have now dedicated yourself to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. The number of burnt offerings the assembly brought was 70 bulls. Now, burnt offerings have to do with sin and the expiation of sin. When Hezekiah came to power, he inherited a contaminated temple. His daddy was Ahaz and his daddy was a bit of a, a, a devil, Bobby Boucher. And he needed to, to cleanse and clarify the purpose of God in the temple. Since the purpose of the temple was to identify Yahweh's presence with and in Israel, the one nation on earth that was his, Hezekiah sacrificed exactly 70 bulls, one for each nation that Yahweh wanted to reclaim through Israel. His house would be a house of prayer for all nations. First Israel is sacrificed for and then every nation got their own sacrifice and that is broadcast 
through the number 70. That truth is reflected all over the word. It's why we put it on a slide for you and we can't go through them all for obvious reasons. Number seven, we already said, is where silver sprinkling bowls were brought to the tabernacle. Every tribe had to contribute one and they were 70 shekels. But maybe the most fun one to me is in the seventh feast of Israel that occurs in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the feast, Numbers 29 totals the bulls that are sacrificed as 70. And it's a feast called Sukkot, where we celebrate when we were once in temporary residences, but now Israel has been saved and brought into permanence and turns their attention towards every nation on earth. Look, God cares about the disinherited nations. Those of you that have counted Israel out from time to time and have a hard time seeing their future, you were counted out before Israel was even created. But Israel was created for your redemption. See, there is a beautiful symmetry in this, almost as if God has bound all men over to disobedience that he might have mercy on them. The God of Israel wants to reclaim the lost nations of the world. Come on now, church, to get a good picture of the shape of the battle. Let's go to Judges chapter 1. That takes place immediately after the death of Joshua. By the way, Joshua, what a great name, right? His exact name is Yeshua. His name, the one who's going to bring salvation. Let's take a look at Judges chapter 1 and verse 4. It says this, when Judah attacked... The Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Opposable thumbs, Mr. Falker. (laughs) Verse 7 says this, Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and Adonai Bezek died in the very city of God. See, in only the second book of the Nevim section, we have a rather vivid picture of what happens after Joshua. I mean, Jesus. I mean, Joshua is no longer visible on the earth. See, a previously unrevealed opponent, the false god of lightning, is seen with 70 kings subjected to him, humiliated by him, and robbed of their purpose in him. See, the question is, who should go first? That's what the beginning of the chapter starts off with. The answer is, of course, the plan of salvation starts with the tribe of Judah. Amen. See, this is a consistent theme from the beginning of the word through the end of the word. These men subdued Adonai Bezek, which signaled the beginning of the conquest of reclaiming what is God's, namely the nations. See, it wasn't over. He had just lost his first battle. His dominion fell from that area, but there was yet more to be conquered, and that's what we're going to take a look at. Listen, um, we just hinted at the answer for Luke 10, if you were thinking about it. Adonai Bezek just lost territory. But we still had many years, in fact, seven more years of conquest in the Joshua story. If Joshua is foreshadowing a later event, 
That is already the beginning to the answer of Luke 10. But we will answer it for you. We're, we're about to turn Luke 10. No, no worries. And our heart is that we, we actually we want you to understand it. Because God will help you understand it. But before we get there and as we come to it, we want to re- remind you of a few key points. Y'all want some key points? Yes. Okay. Number one, Satan was a corrupt prosecutor throughout the biblical narrative and all the way to the point of the crucifixion where he lost his position. When did he lose his position? At the cross. At the cross, at crucifixion. Number two, prior to Jesus' ministry, the Tanakh only records a single rebuke in the book of Zechariah concerning Satan's opposition to an Israelite high priest in the city of Jerusalem. By the way, the high priest's name was Joshua or Yeshua. How about that? Hmm. Oh, we continue on. Number three. It's not until Luke 4 that you ever see Satan soliciting worship or the Bible recording Satan's claim to have rulership over the 70 nations. Not until Luke 4. And lastly, number four, Satan had apparently worked in the background to manipulate the lesser Elohim that drove the nations into idolatry, but he had never been exposed or judged for it. See, the miracle of Luke 4 is that out of Satan's own mouth, he's admitting to being behind the idolatrous straying of the other Benaiha Elohim. The Bible never indicated that anywhere before. Satan is saying it about himself, which is a profound confession, particularly from a being that seems to be designed to get other people's confession. As we turn to Luke 10, and you can turn there, understand Jesus' resistance to the temptation, that must have been baffling to Satan. Mm -hmm. Jesus looked and was human. No matter how great Moses was, when pushed on enough, Moses sinned. David, no matter how great David was, when pushed on, David sinned. Throughout the human drama, there had never been somebody that Satan couldn't get to buckle in any way. Now, to you, 2,000 years after the cross, you say, well, he's God. And that seems so easy. I want you to understand he looks very much like a normal man. We struggle to see his humanity But the people standing in Jesus' day struggled to see his divinity. They didn't have the benefit of 2,000 years of preaching. They were standing staring at a carpenter's son. And Satan did not understand everything that you might think he understood. He left that encounter looking for a more opportune time to attack Jesus. To make matters worse, in Matthew 10, Jesus begins doing something. He sends out 12 disciples and he sends them only to the lost sheep of Israel. But he gives them authority over demonic powers or disembodied Rephaim. Satan must have been like losing his lunch over that. (laughs) Who is this guy? It's not that nobody had ever cast out a demon before. It's that they'd never been in teams of 12 representing the 12 tribes doing it in unison without problem. Okay. If that weren't enough, Luke 10 has now picked up with the 12 that have become 70. Okay? So you have to picture Satan looking, wondering what's going on here. He's concerned. 
Luke 10 has Jesus with 70 and he's given them authority over demonic spirits. And hear this, unlike the 12, when he sends out this 70, he gives them no geographic limitation of any kind. When he sent out the 12, he said, go only to Israel. When he sent out the 70, yeah, go where you want to go. Just preach this message. Do you see what's being forecasted there? It would take 12 to bring Israel back into right relationship. They would raise up 70. They would bring the rest of the world into right relationship. Y'all kind of got what we're forecasting? Now, do you want to answer Luke 10? Luke 10, let's pick up in verse 17. If your Bible says the 72, you can take out a highlighter or anything that you want. It's 70. The 70 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Come on, you're charismatic Christians. You ever get excited about that? Now, I played it cool the first time I cast out a devil like, you know, it had been done many times before. But secretly, I was very giddy inside. Like, I, I felt legitimate, legitimatized. I, Christians, we like to celebrate things sometimes. I get it. I want you to notice what this passage goes on to teach, though. The 70 have returned, and they notice that they do have the power that he said over those warlord kings, departed spirits, those demonic Rephaim things. Verse 18. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have 2,000 years ago, and John Milton will write about it. No, he didn't say that. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is the immediate context that we're talking about? The previous verse. Okay, but I'll make that clear. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, somebody say however. However. Do not rejoice that that spirits submit to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We're going to get to that correction because it is a huge correction. But I first want to get to what you're interested in. Both the context and the Greek verb here, which is in the imperfect tense. If we have the New American Standard, can we put that on the screen for a second? It would be Luke 10, 19 in the New American Standard. Behold, I was given authority to trample... No, uh, 18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall. Now, there's no way to put that eons in the past, is there? That's because the, the, ter- the, the verb is in the imperfect tense. Both context and the verb tensing tell us that what Jesus is talking about is what they were doing in the verse before, and he was watching. Does that make sense? So this would suggest that Jesus was watching Satan lose his grip on these geographical regions while the 70 disciples were working to reclaim the nations. This is not some kind of allusion to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, or something in the primordial past. It's actually alluding to the immediately preceding verse. Now, we know this is not Satan's ultimate fall yet. Okay, He, he is struggling with these sons of God that are let loose. But he hasn't fallen, and we know that because of the chronology we've already gone through in John. Jesus has not been crucified yet. At the crucifixion is where he fell. 
to help you with that. Satan never actually falls like, oops, I slipped and I can't get up. He's hurled out on his head. There is a violent war conflict with Michael, and it seems to be an extended one that he loses. Yahweh's plan has always been to save the nations, but it's now in motion. And Jesus is saying, I was watching and I saw Satan losing his grip. If that's hard for you to grab hold of, I want to encourage you to read Lamentations 2.1 because Lamentation 2.1 uses the exact same language talking about Israel. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He's not saying that Israel was in the heavens and was cast out of the heavens. He's saying that Israel has lost something. Does that make sense to you? Now, Satan is indeed cast from the heavens. You can read about it in Revelation 12. Or in John 12, John 13, John 14, and John 16. What Luke 10 is about is him losing his stranglehold on certain regions. Okay, with that in mind, it's probably at this point that Satan came to the conclusion that he needed to kill Jesus. Probably right here. It's also probably at this point that he asked for permission. Somebody say permission. Permission. To sift Peter. See, he's not aware that Yahweh is aware of his activity because he doesn't quite understand the relationship between this thing that looks like a human being and acts like Yahweh and the unseen Yahweh. And so he's still going back to Yahweh saying, hey, uh, have you considered Peter? I, I think we are to check him out. And Jesus is aware of it. Are you getting the picture now? Satan's world <laughs> is literally being rocked. <laughs> Although he would not be exposed till the cross, he is fighting. He is trying to react to what he sees as human opposition and Yahweh is helping. And we know is more than human opposition. Now, the most interesting part of this passage, though, I hope I answered your question. But the most interesting part of the passage is the one that everybody overlooks. Jesus treats dominion over the spirits of the Rephaim as a minor thing. A small thing, child's play, kitty lessons. Instead, he said, rather rejoice that your names are in the heavens. Why? Because he's indicating that these men would replace the lesser Elohim that caused the nations to be disinherited. He's indicating that they would become the instrument that leads the nations of the world back to the worship of Yahweh. Don't rejoice that you can step on a scorpion. Rejoice that you can bring down the false god of a nation and return that nation back to the Father. That's what we should be rejoicing about. Come on now. Let's continue on with the next verse. Let's see how this continues. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord, of heaven and earth because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. Come on now. Can you imagine why Jesus got a little excited in this moment? Yeah, buddy. The very thought of initiating Yahweh's mandate, the very thought of making manifest what we later learn is his very purpose to be here, which is to destroy the works of the devil. It caused Jesus to become excited, full of joy, full of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Come on now. One has to wonder 
as I was reading through this. You have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. One has to wonder, based on our teachings lately, if these things that were hidden were hidden from men of earth or beings in the heavens. Or both. 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 And revealed to whom? Revealed to little children. Revealed to sons. To sons and daughters of God. Revealed to us. Maybe even here in this room. Man, that should make you... To know that Jesus Christ was overwhelmed with joy. He saw it. He's like, oh, I've been waiting for this. I know exactly what this means. This was my purpose and it's coming to fruition. Man, that should move us in our hearts today. It also makes Matthew and I feel a lot happier about being called childish. (laughs) I'm just looking for revelation as a son of God. That's all I'm talking about. Are you all ready to continue? Verse 22. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Hey, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. See, these things take a revelation from God. Too many men that have stood in the council of God have made too many assumptions. And like the devil, they end up leading the world astray. How blessed are you, saints? How blessed are you in this room tonight to hear what you are hearing, to see what you see? We are like the little children, and our Father is showing us things the prophets and kings longed to look into. But you know what? Every revelation demands a response. Begin thinking about what you now must do. Because of what now has already been revealed to you. Now, when we say now, we don't mean 2,000 years in your past. That would be a work of fiction. We mean now. Yeah. Uh, This is a revelation that Jesus himself rejoiced over. He felt full of the Spirit over, full of joy over. Maybe it didn't happen on a Wednesday night. I'm not sure but I'm telling you, you cannot buy this stuff at your local bookstore. Really it's revealed from heaven. And you, he wants you to know it. Yeah. In fact, Colossians 2.15, let me read this to you. And having disarmed the powers and authorities. I love that imagery. Yes, like, rip it off. You got one of those? Bam. Oh now you don't. I, I, I now have it. You no longer do. And then I'm going to beat you with it. Yeah. Beat you with the bloody end. <laughs> well, what it must be like to look into the heavenly realms and see that Jesus, having disarmed the, the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. Come on. Something that's so much well known than a YouTube channel. But he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. How? By the cross. 
See, Satan was made public spectacle at the cross. Right before Jesus goes to the cross. You might not realize it, but when you get to John 13, all the rest of the chapters, all of it, it it's all occurring inside of 24 hours. John 13 is, is the eve before Jesus' crucifixion. Let's pick up in John 13.1. We're bringing our message to a close, but we still have something rather exceptional for you. An hour and four minutes in, I I just kind of think you could probably hang on for a couple minutes. 13.1. It was just before the Passover. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Look at verse 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Hours before the crucifixion, hours before the battle to expel Satan from the heavens, Jesus took a moment to demonstrate the full extent of his love to his disciples. The entire point of the communion meal was to teach them that they had a responsibility to do this for the rest of humanity. The book of Acts records them making good on their vow. Jesus made good on his vow within 24 hours. They would make good on their vow within the chapters of the book of Acts. And Pastor Wade's going to tell us about it. Are you ready for something good? Yes. This is special. Turn with us to Acts chapter 2. Now this is... As a spirit-filled believer, this has got to be one of your favorite passages. But don't tune us out here. You're going to get something here that is fresh and it's going to bless you. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this. When the day of Pentecost came. Clearly an American holiday, right? Scandinavian perhaps. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Who were? These Jews who were meeting together. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. Man, we could go on all night about this passage. We could talk to you about how the wind blowing in the fire there reminded you of a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud there in the desert while they were there. We could talk to you about a lot of different things, about being with, filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is something that is important. We could talk about how the tabernacle at its dedication was so filled with the glory of God that no one could enter. We could talk to you about Leviticus 9 when the fire of God fell. Or in Second Chronicles 7 when they were trying to dedicate the temple and the fire of God fell. Yeah. But that's just the warm-up for us. Look at verse 5. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem. Where were they? They were in Jerusalem. God-fearing Jews from 70 nations under heaven. From every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because each one of them heard the speaking in his own language. Man, what an incredible passage, right, church? These are familiar words, but let us get to something. In light of everything that we've been learning, this passage now 
What we learned in Luke chapter 10, we see it being manifested. We see it being multiplied by Acts chapter 2. We see a D-Day kind of invasion coming for God's people. Now, what we see in Acts 2 is that it has become a reversal of the Tower of Babel. What they began at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 by Acts 2, God is saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to begin to reverse what they did there. Man, we can go into this in a much deeper time later on. But the idea of Acts 2 being reversal of Babel. Think about it. At Babel, their language was confused. Acts, the people heard them speaking in their own language. The language was no longer an issue. Babel, they were forced to be divided because they didn't want to. They had to spread out against all the earth. In Acts, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven were united in such a way that they had a desire to then be spread out. Let's take a look at this slide that we have here. We'll take a look at the slide here. You can see that these are the list of the nations. These are the list of the places in the next few verses that comes up. You know what they ask in verse 12, Pastor? What does this mean? What do you think it means? Look at the picture, church. You see men from every known part of the world, God-fearing Jews from every nation. God was filling them with His Spirit, lighting them on fire, that they may radiate like the stars in the heavens. And then they were going to go back out to the rest of the world. Look at it. You can see it in a beautiful pictorial form that God was reversing what took place at the Tower of Babel and He was using His people to do it. He was using the baptism in the Holy Spirit to light them up so that they could go and take it because it wasn't just enough for the 12. It was for the 70. God always had it. He was always foreshadowing that this was for the nations. We're tempted to preach on just this tonight. But the thing is, is we have more nights. They heard the sound. They saw something like fire. It divided and came to rest on each of them. And then they all spoke as if they were speaking one language, although they're speaking many to everyone. This is the very spirit of God regathering the disinherited nations. But he does it through the Jewish people. See, that's everything. The further you break down this map, it gets so much more fun. We don't, we, we can't tonight. But there's just a very few nations that are in Genesis 10 that aren't here. Of course, they're all spoken of in the biblical text in the Newer Testament as places that they must get to. It, it's, it's crazy, crazy good. The Lord is unlocking something for us here tonight. Now, when you're thinking about the temptation, I... I want you to grab hold of what Pastor Matthew has to say. So in the temptation in Luke 4, Satan offered to give the nations to Jesus. Right? The thing is, you cannot be given what is your birthright to take. You cannot be given what is your birthright to go and take it. It would have cheapened the entire process if Jesus accepted it. Not to mention that the price was the same. It always had been idolatry. Jesus had something else in mind. The price Jesus paid for you to come into sonship, for you to displace disobedient celestial sons, the price that he paid for you to shine like the stars of the heavens, it was his blood. Now he's asking something of you. 
Will you pay the same price for the recalling of his disinherited nations? Saints, in every generation men have. He gave you his blood to make you his sons. And now you as sons have to offer to spill your blood to go get the nations that are his inheritance. It's our turn to drink from the cup of sacrifice. It's our turn to join with Paul and Philip in our flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. You were taught something special tonight, and we've been leading up to it for weeks, and we're going to take it further. But understand, men and other generations have longed to look into this. You're now responsible for what you know. We don't just die and go to heaven. We don't get propped up by a jukebox when we die. We don't play with golden candy apples on merry-go-rounds, as Luther said. You were called to displace celestial powers that were not loyal. You were called to shine like the stars of heaven. Your aim is a glorified body ruling and judging the creation with Christ. Knowing that, that changes the way that we view communion. You're not just thanking Jesus for the blood that purchased you and saved you. It's a commitment to spill your blood with His to go get the rest of those who were among the disinherited nations and bring them back. For the first four centuries of the faith, that's how they understood it. Men in every generation have. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You would have to get to fat lazy, spiritually apathetic Americans that could turn the most sacrificial victory plan in the world into an excuse to get rich, an excuse to get comfortable, an excuse to be blessed. It's satanic idolatry. Nothing upsets God more than when He's misrepresented in His own house. This caused Jesus Christ to sit down and make a whip, stand up, and go clean the house. Communion is our own house cleaning. You get right with the Lord so that you represent Him right. And you renew your commitment. He died for you that you might die for them. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to go back into worship. You're going to have the opportunity to take communion with your brothers and sisters. Our hope is that from this very body, the nations of the world will will be reached. I hope one day we will be standing in the kingdom that has come upon us in fullness. And we'll look back. Every nation in the world could be tied to this room. That's up to us. There's more than 70 here. As we begin to pray... We're going to invite you to take the communion elements and then come back to your seat so that we can worship and together as a family consider the seriousness of our vows. This was never about going along and getting along. This is about throwing disobedient powers out of the heavens and ridding the earth of their influence. To do that, you have to be completely free. Father, we're asking here and now that you would move on behalf of your people, that your spirit of holiness 
would help us. Lord, draw us into your revelation. Draw us into your power. Tonight, as we renew our covenant with you, Lord, we're asking that you would give us proper vision for how we how we deal with the rest of the world around us. Most of us were outside the covenant looking in and you drew us in. Lord, we want to be like that for the other nations. In the name of Jesus, amen.